All right, we're continuing our study through the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Samuel chapter 18. I don't know how everybody's week went this past week. We had a chance to go. Some of us got to go to the uh, conference at Indiana, and it was a good time. We had some good speakers there, some good encouragement from the Word. Uh, Just made kind of a busy week, too, (laughs) for the rest of the week for that. I sold some of you this before, but uh, there was one of the speakers there. He was talking about this. We had sung this song, Worthy is the Lamb. And he said there was someone that had some sheep, and uh, they had a lamb, and one of the lambs they had they named Worthy. And they said that lamb also uh, gave its life that others might live. So anyway, that was a, that was a joke. <laughs> anyway, I told Lisa we've got to get a lamb this spring and call it Worthy. I thought that was cool. Somebody says, what's the name of your lamb? We'll say, Worthy. And then a chance to give the gospel with that too. So anyway, it tickled me. Okay, it's early, I know. <laughs> 2 Samuel uh, chapter 18. At this point in the story we've been, we've been following, Absalom has come into Jerusalem with his men and he's taken over. And at this particular time, he's going to go after David to try and kill him and his men. So David's still on the run from Absalom, but he's not running on his own because the Lord is with him. And wherever we may have to run in this life, remember we're never running alone. Because the Lord is with us, you know, that is, if we belong to Christ, he is right there with us all the time. So let's jump into our our passage in 2 Samuel 18, down to verse 1. It says, And David numbered the people who were with him, and you probably have a footnote on there if you've got the New King James. Uh, That word numbered is, is literally attended to, and I think that makes more sense in the passage here. So David attended to the people who were with him. And he set captains of thousands and captains of, captains of hundreds over them. So we're told that David was doing two things here. First of all, he was taking care of the people who were with him. And secondly, he was setting the leaders in place to get ready for battle. So we want to look at those a second. First of all, David was making sure that all the people who were with him were being taken care of. They'd just been given a whole bunch of provisions, and we saw that at the end of chapter 17. If you want to look back to the last couple of verses in chapter 17, verse 27, it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Machur, the son of Amiel from Lodibar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, and uh, you can keep Barzillai's name in your mind because he's going to come back in the story later. But these guys brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and sheaves of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness." So David was making sure that these provisions that they were getting to all the people, and you notice this, David's primary concern was his people. He, here he is, he's got uh, an army kind of coming after him and almost breathing down his neck here, but his first concern is, I've got to make sure my people are okay. So caring for people should always be our primary concern too. And I know in the busy world in which we live that sometimes we can lose sight of that. So passages like this are good to to bring us back. And what an example we get from David. You know, here he is getting ready to to be attacked, and he's got to get everybody ready for that. 
And first of all, though, he's going to make sure all the people's needs were met. And if you remember, Jesus did the same thing for the apostles on the night before he was crucified. So he had the crucifixion staring him in the face the next day. On the night before that, Jesus was comforting his disciples. He was telling them, don't be afraid. You know, and he assured them he was going to repair a place for them in his father's house. So the Lord shows us through these examples that no matter how bad things get, we should always care for the ones that we love, the people who are dear to us. And uh, David gives us a beautiful example of that here. So look at this principle. What should you do when you're in a tight spot like David? Because David, I'm sure he's feeling a lot of pressure here. And the Lord shows us, you just keep doing the right thing. And the right thing here was you help other people. You know, the Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the best things to get your eyes off your own problems when you're going through a tough time is to serve someone else in the needs that they have. David's people here, they'd been on the run too. And as it says, they were tired and they were weary and they were hungry. So here's David, he was attending to them, making sure their needs were met and that they were taken care of. That's a very honorable thing we see with David. The second thing we were told he was doing there was he was setting up these leaders over different, different groups. So he was preparing the troops for battle. You think about this as we look at this kind of a bigger picture here. The Lord had sent provisions of food, but he'd also sent provisions of soldiers. I don't know if you notice the numbers here in verse 1. We knew David had 600 men before, right? But now we see there are thousands that are among them. How did that happen? The Lord was bringing good people to come alongside David to support him. So we can get from this. When we're in a bad spot, we should never think that we're alone. Nor should we think that God can't send help our way. You know, so the message to us is don't give up so easily. <laughs> I don't know about you, but a lot of times the enemy's whispering and sometimes even shouting in our ear, just give up, man, just quit, you know, and don't listen to those lies. You know, that's the enemy trying to discourage us because he knows we're advancing on his kingdom and he doesn't like that at all. So I love to see the picture of David here, you know. He's in a bad spot, and he's not even thinking of quitting. He's just helping people that are around him. He's getting ready for battle, doing whatever he has to do. And that's encouragement for us, too. If we got warfare coming, that's all right. We just, you know, saddle up our horses. We put on the armor of God. We get ready to move forward in whatever direction the Lord tells us. Now, look what David needed at this time. He had two really big needs in his life. He needed food for his people. And where's that going to come from? You know, they don't have time to go gather crops or anything. And here the Lord provided for that. He also needed help for his soldiers. He got 600 tough guys, but it sure helps if you got a lot more help than that, right? And the Lord provided that too. So thank you, Lord, you know, for always watching out for your children. We don't ever have to sweat it. We can just trust the Lord and see what he's going to do. Verse 2 goes on. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, and these are his soldiers he's, he's lining up here, one-third under the hand of Abishiah, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, so these two are brothers, and one-third under the hand of Atai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out uh, with you myself. So David has already put men in charge of different groups of his soldiers. We saw that in verse 1. And now he's separating the troops into three divisions. 
and he's putting a commander in charge of each division. So we've got the two brothers, Joab and Abishiah. They're fierce warriors. They don't mind shedding blood. And this other guy, if you remember him, Itiah, he's a newcomer. He was a foreigner, and he was an exile from his homeland, and he just joined David's group on the day before they had to flee from Jerusalem. So he's, he's fresh here with these guys. And remember, David, he even tried to tell the guy to go back to your homeland instead of running and hiding with us. You know, it's like, I'm sure you weren't signing up for this when you came over here. But Atiah, if you remember too, he said to David, I will follow you in death or in life. You're my king. So he was very committed to David. And it's just amazing for me to see David has put him in, in charge of some major troops here. So this guy must have really impressed David. He's not been around that long. And yet he's putting him right alongside his other two generals he's got here, his other commanders. Now next we see David, you know, at the end of that verse, he said he was going to go out to battle with his men, which you would probably expect. You know, David's a warrior. He knows how to fight. He's been in a lot of skirmishes. But that's not going to go over so well with his men. <laughs> if you look at verse 3, after he said, I'll surely go out with you myself, it says, but... The people answered, you shall not go out. For if we flee away, they will not care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth more than 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. So these people knew that the Lord had used David to make the nation of Israel great when they were under his rule. So they didn't want to take a risk of losing David. And if you think about it, that's what this whole thing is about. They're after David, right? So they're saying they don't really care about us. It's you that they're after. So they did tell him, you know, if, if you want to stay here, you'd be a lot more help to us if you ran things behind the scene back at the city. And that's, that's a great tool as well with all David's experience. He'll be able to know when they need to send more help out and everything else. So he's kind of at the home base and uh, they said, it'd be great if you stay here. We don't want you out there with a chance of getting wounded or even killed. So amazing to see the heart of these, these guys. They're going to lay their life on the line, but they don't want David to have to do that because they're trying to protect him. Man, you got some loyal followers when they get to that point, right? So verse 4, then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now, to me, this is an amazing thing. And remember, God shows us a lot of this to show us what David is like, show us his heart. David submitted to their decision. He said, if you guys think that's best, then that's what I will do. This, again, shows the humbleness of David. As king, he doesn't have to submit to anything or anyone. He is top dog, right? So when they tell him this, you're not going with us, he said, well, if you guys think that's best, then I will, I will stay back. That's pretty amazing. Now, as he's standing by the gates there as they're marching out, David is showing the troops, you know, that, that I'm with you. My heart is with you. Even if I can't physically go with you, my heart is here. So he's showing respect for the guys as they're marching out and they're, they're going by David, and I'm sure it's an encouragement for them. We're fighting for this guy. We're going to protect him. That's why we're going. So verse 5 goes on. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittiah, his three commanders, and he said, deal gently for my sake with the young man 
Absalom. So that's David's son. He's saying, I want you to be very gentle with him when you find him. And he said, and all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So David, if you notice here, he's very confident they're going to win the battle. He doesn't even say, go out and do the best you can. He knows my guys can handle this. So he's very confident of that. His only concern is that when you come upon Absalom, he, he wanted to make sure they brought him back alive. David did not want to lose his son over this ordeal. And he announced this command publicly in front of all the people. So I think he was trying to add more pressure to these commanders because he knew Joab and he knew Abishai. He knew what they were like. These guys, they like to shoot first and ask questions later. So he's making it clear, I don't want you to injure my son. I want you to bring him back safely. So he's kind of putting them on the spot by making this command in such a public way. So they couldn't avoid it, couldn't say we didn't hear it, didn't know about it. He, he made sure it was very clear. Okay. Uh, verse 6 goes on. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. So it just kind of very quickly brings us to the battle scene of what's going on. Absalom, you think about this, he didn't have warfare experience. He was a guy that was taking care of his hair and looking good and everything else. He wasn't really worried about being in battle. I don't think he learned anything from his dad. He probably never asked any questions about it. And here's David. He's got decades of experience, and he knew warfare. So David had the advantage here in the area of skill and he also had the advantage in the area of strategy, and that's what we're going to see here. David knew that he was probably outnumbered by Absalom's army. So David chose a very strategic spot for the battle to take place. He chose the woods. Now this gave David's men such an advantage, because although Absalom's army was huge, he, he probably had a lot of guys coming with him, uh, they would have to break into smaller groups to go into the heavily wooded, wo uh, wooded area here. So they weren't able to just do a massive charge. They're going to have to figure out how to break up into groups and get into these woods and find these guys and everything else. So this way, David's men would just be fighting smaller pockets of soldiers instead of one massive group at one time, one huge division all at once. So verse 7 now. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David. So Absalom's guys are getting beat up really bad before the servants of David. And it says, a great slaughter of 20,000 took place that day. So look at how many soldiers died. These are Israelites, 20,000 men. And that's something you have to pause on for a minute. Because this is all going back to the bitterness of Absalom and Ahithophel, if you remember. We talked about that a couple of weeks. Because of their bitterness, 20,000 men died. You know, we talked about this before, about how dangerous and how deadly the root of root bitterness can be. And how many, many people can be uh, defiled or affected by our bitterness. So here is one of the ugliest pictures uh, you find on bitterness where 20,000 guys lost their life because of the bitterness of these other people. Think about this. 
That means 20,000 wives lost their husband and 20,000 families lost their dad, all because of unresolved bitterness. Wow. This was a terrible slaughter, and it was a terrible defeat for Israel. It goes on to verse 8. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So this shows the advantage that David had by drawing Absalom's troops into the woods to fight. Uh, From what we can see in other glimpses of the woods here, there were apparently some deep pits. There were some very thick underbrush. And these guys, apparently from what we're going to see, probably got caught or stuck in these things and couldn't get out. So they were kind of easy prey. That's what it says. The woods took out more than actually the sword did here. Uh, Coming down to verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. So here he's, he's running around in the woods somewhere. And who does he run to, into? A whole bunch of David's men. That's the scary thing. So Absalom, he was riding on a mule, we're told there. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth. Can you picture him? He's just dangling there, you know, with this tree holding his head, and some speculate it might have been his hair that got stuck up in there. Uh, one guy was saying it was probably just a week before he got his hair cut, too, you know, and didn't know that was going to be an issue with him. But here he is hanging from the tree, and it says, and the mule which was under him, it went on. <laughs> it wasn't staying there, so it took off. <clears throat> now a certain man saw it. He sees him hanging there, and he told Joab, and he said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. <laughs> and I don't know what Joab was thinking when he first heard that. It's like, for real? (laughs) Are you dreaming or something or just real? Uh, So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. So Joab here offers quite a reward if this soldier would have killed Absalom. Now, (laughs) I think he told this guy that they're hoping this guy's going to take up his offer and say, well, hey, wait, if that's still on the table, I'll go back and do this. So I think he was trying to tempt him to go back and finish the job. See, that way, Joab wouldn't be the one who's tagged with killing David's son. Well, he's ran into the wrong guy for that job. Because verse 12, the man said to Job, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, if you put it in my hand right now, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. He says, why? For at our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. So this soldier was a man of integrity, or at least he was a man who was loyal to David's command, or maybe he was just too smart to fall for Joab's trick here as we're going to see as we read on. But either way, this guy is not going to kill Absalom. He said, that's not going to happen. So verse 13, he goes on and he's still talking to Joab. He says, otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. put my own life in danger. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. (laughs) So this guy's smart enough to know if he killed Absalom, then he's putting his own life in jeopardy because he knows the king is going to find out. 
David's got guys all over that wood, so they're going to see. Somebody's going to see. And then he says that if he did that, he knows that Joab would turn on him and be his accuser. <laughs> he knows Joab, too, apparently. So he knows Joab pretty well, and he knows David pretty well. You know, that David's going to find out for sure. So this guy makes it very clear he doesn't want any part of this deal. And, you know, it's a shame, <laughs> but there are people in the world like that who will use you and they'll turn on you if they get the chance. So in situations like that, we just got to keep our eyes on the Lord and continue to do the right thing. And this guy, it's pretty amazing. He's offered a lot of, of wealth here. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. So he was not tempted by those things. Uh, verse 14 goes on. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. <laughs> and he took three spears in his hand. He thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And uh, our translations say the heart. It means basically his, his center mass here somewhere. Uh, Joab basically, he pushes this guy aside since he sees there's no chance to talk him into killing Absalom. And uh, Joab decides he better take care of Absalom himself. You know, he wanted to do it quickly probably for fear that somebody's going to come along and help him out of the tree, and then he's going to be rescued, and he didn't want that to happen. So Joab, he didn't want Absalom to stay alive, and he didn't want him to be brought back to Jerusalem. In his mind, he must have figured that it was just going to cause more trouble among the people if there were two kings. And there's a possibility it may have kept Israel divided and in turmoil with Absalom still around. Absalom didn't do anything to offer good things for the kingdom. He didn't offer unity. He only offered division and rebellion. But with Absalom gone, he's probably figuring his followers won't have any choice but to submit themselves under David's rule. So in Joab's mind, he was doing what he thought was best for the nation and what he thought ultimately would be best for King David too. Because he knew it wasn't in David to put his own son to death, even if he deserved it. So David had what some people call a weakness as a parent because he always protected his sons from the consequences of their actions. The few times we see his sons get into trouble, we see David trying to ignore, turn it away, or, or protect them from probably their just due. But Joab, here's, the, here's his commander. He doesn't look at the situation as a parent. He looks at the situation as a military commander. He saw Absalom as a traitor, he saw him as a rebel against the established authority of the land of Israel. So by Absalom trying to even come out to kill David himself, that's why he was there, Joab reasoned, you know, that Absalom deserved the death penalty. And he knew David wasn't going to do this. So he carried it out himself. He knew David was not going to carry this out against his own son. Now, anytime we take the law in our own hands, though, we better be ready to live with the consequences because by Joab doing this, he's going against a direct order of the king, and everybody heard that order. So that could put his very life in jeopardy as well. And he is going to pay a price for this down the road. He's not getting away with clean hands on this one. So verse 15 says, And ten young men who bore Joab's armor, so these were his armor bearers, they surrounded Absalom and they struck and they killed him. So it appears that the wounds inflicted by Joab were not enough to kill him immediately. So these 10 young men 
made sure that Absalom was dead. And they were obviously under the orders of Joab. So I don't know what he told them, but he probably said, look, uh, you guys finish this and uh, nobody will get in trouble. Don't worry about it. Uh, it'll all work out. But somebody made an interesting observation about this incident. Maybe you already noticed this. But they said that Absalom raped the ten concubines of David. And here, ten men ended up killing him. That kind of sounds like an interesting picture of justice, huh? Verse 16. So Joab blew the trumpet. He knows Absalom's dead. And it says, And the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people. David's men, when they started a fight, they were used to finishing the fight. But with Absalom dead, you know, there's no sense in, in killing more men of Israel. So Joab stopped the battle at this point. And it's sad to think, you know, that this was a civil war with Israelites basically killing other Israelites. And again, bitterness was the motivation for all of this. Wow. Yeah, it kind of helps if you read these last few chapters all together and you really see that flow of bitterness all the way through. It's really sad. Uh, verse 17, And they took Absalom and they cast him into a large pit in the woods. So that's why I said there are these pits we find that are in that wooded area. And it says, And they laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled. And that's all of Absalom's guys, his troops there. Everyone to his tent, so they all took off after the trumpet was blown, and maybe some guys hung around to see what they were going to do with Absalom. And so once they saw his body thrown here and these stones threw on him, they, they hightailed it out of there. So uh, Joab had the men here treat Absalom's body like refuse, like garbage. Uh, he didn't allow the body to be brought back to Jerusalem to have a royal burial. You know, probably for fear it might, that too might cause division in Israel among the people. So in Joab's mind, he was wanting to bring this bad influence of Absalom to an end. So just like refuse or garbage, he had his body dumped in a hole and they covered it with rocks. And that was the end of him. Somebody pointed this out too, and this, this kind of fits in the story. They said that, that Joab may have felt responsible for Absalom's rebellion. If you remember the story, it was Joab that sent that lady to King David to convince him, you know, that Absalom needed to be returned to Jerusalem, that David needed to have mercy on him and allow him to return home. So if that's the case, that Joab had that on his shoulders, he felt it might further explain his actions that he took here in disposing of his body that way and in him personally killing Absalom. He might have felt, I brought all this on the land, so I'm going to take it out of here myself. Yeah, so in that case... He was trying to bury his mistakes. <laughs> but this one's going to come back to haunt him once David finds out about it. Uh, verse 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime, while he was still alive here, he had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. And here was his reasoning. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. So Absalom had three sons at one point, but they must have all apparently died at this time. So he decided that I'm going to erect this monument for my own legacy. You know, but we learn from this, that if we really want to leave a great legacy, then we have to live for the Lord. You know, uh, 
if we live a godly life, that's the greatest monument we can leave behind, a life that brings honor to the Lord. We don't need to put up some stone thing somewhere. We need to let this legacy be that person loved the Lord and they served the Lord all the days of their life. The Apostle Paul said it this way, and this is a great word for us to apply to our own lives as well. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 19 goes on. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, and Zadok was the priest, so this is one of the sons of the priest. He said, let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day, but today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. So he's letting him know clearly, part of the news that David is gonna hear is that his son has been killed. And he did not want this man, this son of the priest, to be carrying that news back to David. In Ahimaaz's thoughts, and he's probably a younger guy here, he thought that David was going to rejoice when he heard the battle was over and that it was a victory for his men. But Joab knew David better than that. And he knew that David was going to be very upset when he found out that Absalom was dead. For, so for some reason, Joab was trying to protect Ahimaaz from having this event attached to his life, that he was the bearer of bad news. So verse 21, then Joab said to the Cushite, another guy that was serving under him, he said, go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab, to Joab and he ran. So this messenger, he obeyed right away and he got a head start. He took off, okay? Uh, Ahimaaz isn't done yet though. If you look at verse 20. Uh, 22, uh, 22 here, I'm sorry. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, he's like, I don't care whatever the results are, however David's gonna react, whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news already? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite. So this guy's persistent in his request. And Joab finally gave in. He thought, look, if you want to do it that bad, okay, go right ahead. You know? So Ahimaaz actually took a longer route when it tells us a little bit about where he went here. But the terrain he was crossing over was smoother, so he actually got there first. He beat the other guy. So verse 24, now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall. He lifted his eyes and he looked, and there was a man running alone. So here you see David. He's anxiously awaiting the news of his son. He's right there in the gates, you know, and I'm sure he's been praying the whole time, Lord, please protect Absalom. Please protect him. So he's waiting to hear what happened. So they see this guy running in verse 25. Then the watchman cried out. So the guy in the wall says, he told the king, and, and he tells him this guy's coming. And the king said, if he is alone, this is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. So he's hoping this is good. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. 
And the king said, he also brings good news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. So he's starting to recognize him when he gets closer. And the king said, he is a good man and he comes with good news. And maybe that's what Joab was trying to protect David from, thinking if he sees him coming, he's going to think, oh, everything's good, he's okay. So David assumed, rightfully here, that this was going to be good news because he knew Ahimaaz. And he figured that he would only be coming if he was bringing good news. So David now is getting his hopes up. Verse 28, though. So Ahimaaz called out and he said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king, and he said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. So he lets David know, you know, that the battle is over, and uh, he gave the Lord the credit, you know, for the victory. In so doing, he's, he's praising the Lord, you know, thanking him for the victory that, that they saw. But verse 29, that didn't answer everything for David. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? Well, Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant himself, you know, and me your servant, I mean the other servant, the other guy that's running and me too, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. Well, he's lying there, okay? Um, David's question, you think about it, it's entirely understandable because he's a father. But as a king, he should have been inquiring about his soldiers as well. David here is in a very difficult spot because he's both father and king in this situation. And this position that he's in, it's going to take a toll on him, as we'll see in a few minutes. On Ahimez's part, though, he lied here. He did not deliver the message. Remember, we saw that, that Joab told him very clearly, I don't want you taking the news because part of the news is the king's son is dead. So this guy here, he's a picture for us of a messenger who is not willing to tell the truth when it's not popular to hear. And somebody said, if you can't deliver God's message, then don't be a messenger. You know, I don't know if you've ever failed to give the good news of Christ when you had a chance to do so but I have. And it's a horrible feeling afterwards and it has lasting regrets. So we need to pray for boldness to deliver God's full message, especially the hard truth when it's needed. You know, there are times when we have to explain not only how to get to heaven by trusting Jesus, but that there are consequences of hell if Christ is rejected. I know people don't necessarily like to hear the bad news about themselves but it can actually help them come to the right decision. I mean, you think about the bad news that's connected to the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that we're all sinners. And people don't like to hear that necessarily. That's important, though, to let people know so they can see their need for a savior. And then there's the consequences of hell. That's important for somebody to know if they're considering rejecting the good news of Christ and God's love for them. So without the full message, the person we're talking to, they might make the wrong choice, and it would be a disastrous choice. So never be like this messenger, Ahimaaz. Deliver the entire message when it is needed. So verse 30 goes on. The king said, turn aside and stand here. So he's telling Ahimaaz, you need to step aside. I want to talk to this other guy. So he turned aside and he stood still. 
So look at this. This messenger was of no use to David from what he, wanted, he really wanted to know. And we may be of no use to someone if we don't tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I mean, think about that. Verse 31, just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my Lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to, Cushite, to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord the king and all who rise against you to do harm be like that young man. So this messenger was tactful, but he got the full message across. David understood that Absalom was dead. So this teaches us a further lesson, you know. If we're concerned about how people are going to receive the good news as, as well as the bad news of the gospel, then we just need to learn to present the news in a tactful way. We still need to tell the whole truth, but we can do it in a tactful way. That might mean you have to think a little bit more and pray a little more when you're talking to someone, but we can present the good news in a loving way. You know, we can tell people, look, I know you're not open to Christ right now, but I have to tell you because I care about you and because God loves you very much that if you refuse Christ, you've got a terrible future coming for you for all eternity. Hell is real and people are going to be thrown there if they refuse the love of God that he's offering to you in Christ right now. So we can say it in love and tactfully, you know, without slamming them and saying, you're going to go to hell if you reject Christ, you know. We can do that, so pray about that and, and ask the Lord to give you grace to help people with that too. Uh, verse 33, then the king was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said thus, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And although David was a king and a father, Right now, he was overwhelmed as a father, and he didn't hold back his emotions. So we can understand, David is a pretty emotional guy, and this, this really floored him. But it goes on, and Joab said to him, Behold, the king is weeping, and, and the king, I'm sorry, Joab was told about this. Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So as this news gets to Joab, he's going to address it. He's thinking, this is not a good thing, that David was up there weeping and mourning so loud. So in verse 2, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. So the, the troops are coming back and they weren't coming looking like they just won. They just looked like they lost. You know, so here's David. He's weeping. His sorrow is heard. He carries this on and on. He doesn't go out to meet the troops when they come back. He just took it this way too far. So his men are feeling, you know, like this is more of a defeat than a victory. It could be a real morale breaker for these guys too. He's going to hear that in a minute. So as a king, he had the responsibility of standing up for his men and showing his gratitude for what they did. This is a very difficult place for David to be in, but this should have been a day to celebrate their victory and that his troops were able to return home safely. So these guys, they risked their lives for David, you know. But right now, they're not feeling like a bunch of heroes. <laughs> Rather, they're feeling like a bunch of losers. And that's the visual picture we see as they're coming back in. 
So verse 4, but the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So uh, David was only feeling his loss at this point. He just kept carrying his, his loud mourning on and on. Verse 5, then Joab came into the house to the king, and he said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom have lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. So Joab, he tries to wake up David and bring him to his senses. He lets David know, you know, his soldiers and, and all these people, how they're interpreting his actions. And, and Joab, he's obviously sarcastic here and letting David know that what he was doing was not a good thing. But, you know, we all need a Joab in our life. Someone who's not afraid to come up to us and talk straight to us when we've messed up and we're not doing things the right way. We need someone to set us straight at times like that, you know, when we're not seeing how our actions are negatively affecting others. So we got to give Joab credit on this one. Uh, verse 7 goes on. We'll just go a little bit further here. We're not going to go too far. Verse 7, it says, Now therefore, here's Joab telling him what he needs to do. Arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has fallen you from your youth until now. So Joab explains that David needed to repent. He needed to change his thinking on this. And he further explained how serious this was, that if David didn't change his attitude, I mean right now, then he was going to lose every one of his soldiers, all these guys who have been so faithful to him. This is hitting them hard, and it's hitting Joab hard too. Joab's pretty disappointed in, in David's reaction here. He knew David was going to be upset, but he's thinking, you need to stop this right now. He says, if you don't, this is going to turn out horrible for you down the road. These guys aren't going to be there for you. So when you look at this, aren't you thankful there's a guy like Joab who will mentally walk you through all the landmines you're about to step on? Man, he's doing David a huge favor in this one. So verse 8, then the king arose and he sat in the gate and they, they told all the people saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. So all these guys, when they snuck back in the city, they just went straight back to their place they were staying. It's like, wow. I mean, they were moping. <laughs> so David here, he did the right thing. He received this important rebuke from Joab, and he did the right thing. You know, may we receive the important rebukes that come from our Joab if and when they come. And the most important news that anybody can receive is the news that Christ died in our place that he paid for our sins in the cross. We were guilty, and he was innocent. He was the one willing to take the punishment that we deserved. The most important thing a person can do is receive Jesus Christ into their life and thank him for dying on the cross for them. Let's take that message with us wherever we go and pray that we boldly explain that to people speaking the truth in love. We're gonna stop right here today, and we're gonna pick it up next time, Lord willing. 
But uh, this, is, this is another kind of a sad story we see in David's life. The Lord is very open. He lets us see some flaws in David as well as some good things. And uh, the Lord looks at us the same way. He sees our flaws and he sees the good things we do for him as well. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great long-suffering you have for each one of us. Lord, I know there are times that we have disappointed you. There are times that we've been very selfish and we've done things our own way. We've maybe neglected the role that you've called us to, to live as a representative of Christ. And Lord, I pray today, help us to, uh, to get our heads straight. Lord, I pray this passage was a Joab to us, that if we have decided to walk away from you or we are drifting, that you'd call us back and help us to recommit ourselves to you, Lord, and to step up to that call you have in our life to live as your child, to live as a follower of Jesus. And Lord, I pray you give us the boldness at the right time, at the right moment, when we have opportunity to share Christ with someone who's right in front of us, Lord, that you would just fill us with your spirit and the truth would come flowing out of us, that you would protect us from raising any barriers in the person. Please let it be so tactful, Lord, that it goes straight into their heart and you give them that opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, I also want to pray for any of our brothers and sisters in Christ who, are, who have strayed away and they're not even here, Lord, but, but they're off and they're, just, they're not even paying attention to you right now, Lord. I pray that you would stir their heart. I pray you would send a Joab to them where they would listen. And I ask you, Lord, to bring them back to yourself. Help them to walk before you the right way, doing the right things. So again, Lord, thank you for your great patience with us. Thank you for loving us so much that you, you discipline us when we need it. So, Lord, I just pray for everybody here. Please encourage them if they've been in this situation and, and this really spoke to them today. So, Lord, I just give you back all the praise, all the glory, all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen.